So I've got some follow-up from mm-hmm. my topic from last week. Because my topic from last week was – it involved Swift. And Swift appears to be the, the secret sauce, the magic ingredient for any podcast or any <laughs> blog post. And that, that makes you more popular if you just even mention Swift at all. So, so there you go. Because, you know, most of the time we don't get any feedback. And this time we got – not only did we get feedback. So, so Daniel Jockett responded to the, our Twitter account and mentioned an Apple post. Now, we have been mentioned before – that people said, oh, Apple responded to you, to your, to your podcast, when, like, they would respond, like, you know, two days later, like, when we said uh, that we wanted, you know, message passing in Swift, and then they added, like, the, what was it, like, obj uh, At Dynamic. At Dynamic, yeah. Yeah. And it, they said, hey, wow, they added that for you. Well, yes, they probably didn't add that for us. <laughs> I mean, we even released, I think that Xcode was released on Monday, and we released, like, Sunday night, so it's really... Yeah. It's probably it been, didn't happen. Yeah, difficult for them to have done that yeah. for us. But in any case, the, the magic happened again in that we talked about access controls. And then immediately afterwards, Apple released a new post on their, on their developer blog about access controls and basically justifying why they didn't include protected. And I'm going to read a little bit of that because I think it's kind of interesting. They said, uh, among other things, that said protected conflates access with inheritance. Uh-huh. It doesn't actually offer any real protection since a subclass can always expose the APIs again through making vending their own method for it. And it doesn't offer any additional optimization opportunities either. And it's unnecessarily restrictive. It doesn't allow any of subclasses' helpers, for example, to get at something, just the subclass itself. And, you know, I, I understand where they're coming from about this. But I also think that all of these things were true in all the other languages where protected existed. And it was still useful. So I do think that they're coming at it from the idea that we're creating an entire system and we want the entire system to be co- cohesive and kind of elegant and well-designed. And, you know, the rest of us just want to write our apps, right? And, you know, so, so it, it does make me think, you know, you can file all the bugs you want on this. They've made up their mind. They're not going to bring it back. And I think that's I, – I find that really annoying. Because it's really something that I could have used on my apps. And now for the next 10 years, we're just not going to have it. And so in the same way that in Objective-C, there were so many traditions because the language didn't have these features. Mm-hmm. Well, that was because the language was, was made in a simpler time. Um, you know, and they just... They Chevy did... to the levy type stuff, right? <laughs> yes, I, I, that was probably not the right way to phrase that. But, <laughs> but it was, you know, they didn't, you know, they were in a giant company. They didn't have as many resources. They were just trying to get stuff out. And it was also defined by somebody else and not necessarily Apple next at that point. But now, you know, now they're trying to get everything right the first time around. And of course they won't. But it does seem funny to me that now there will be, now when there are things that are lacking that we have to develop our own traditions around because they're not in the language, now we can point our finger and say they specifically didn't let us have this. So, any thoughts on that before I move on? No, no, I have no thoughts. Go on. Okay. (laughs) So I want to talk about size clauses. And I guess the obligatory size doesn't matter. Um, That's actually kind of what Apple's saying. Mm. about size classes. Now, it's a bit unfortunate that given our, our recent trend of, well, we're not going to go crazy with the preparation, I still haven't actually used them. Mm-hmm. But I've been looking at the, the Apple session about them. And what is that session? Do I have that here? It's like what's new in Cocoa Touch, I think. Mm-hmm. And I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Where they talk for some minutes about it. It's not the entire session, but they talk for some minutes about it. They call it Adaptive Layout. And uh, there was a post by Aaron Vey. Yeah. That's how you pronounce his last name. 
called The Limitations of iOS 8 Size Classes. I think he's deleted it because I tried to go back there now and it's it's not there. Mm, okay. Um, Glad I read it when it came out then. Yeah, well, I can see why he might have wanted to delete it because it was kind of mostly just a, a little bit of a complaint saying these size classes make it seem like Apple is saying make the same interface for iPad and, I- and iPhone. And so my starting off point for this is saying I don't think that's what Apple's saying. What Apple's saying is very interesting, but it's not quite that. They, uh, well, when you talk about size classes, there, there are sort of two, they, they want you to not think about the device anymore in the same way that you have been. They don't want you to have specific checks for iPhone versus iPad, portrait versus landscape in your code. They want to abstract that out. And that makes a certain amount of sense, although it makes the most amount of sense if they're, if they're planning on releasing like lots of new models, right? Because otherwise, if you only have, you know, if, if what they're planning on releasing in the fall is like one more iPhone model that's a little taller. Well, I don't remember the the switch from 3.5-inch phones to 4-inch phones as being all that onerous, for either for developers or for apps or for anything else. I don't remember it taking a lot of time for people to adapt. It didn't seem like you needed a whole new interface paradigm for that. On the other hand, Apple releasing a whole bunch of new phones and a whole bunch of new sizes seems unlike them right? as well. So why are they doing this? And and I don't quite know, but the thing that comes through in that session, and I'm going to talk a little bit more details about that in a minute, is they actually pretty much come right out and say that you may have a smaller interface size in something like an iPad. They pretty much come out and say it, although they don't actually say it. They don't say, you're going to have this in the future, but they say, well, what about if you had a smaller size on an iPad? They pretty much say that. Mm-hmm. And so that makes it sound to me like if they're going to go through all this effort to give you a new API and deprecate all the old APIs, is that for a new OS feature where you can put you know, the app side by side? People have been talking about this for a long time. But that seems weird to me because if it were an OS feature, well, they introduced all the OS features already mm-hmm. for iOS 8. Why keep that in reserve for later and not tell us about it? Now, maybe it's some sort of extra hardware feature on the iPad itself, if that's going to be a way that they'll try to make iPads more attractive for people to buy by somehow giving a special hardware mode that lets, makes it easier to swipe where the swipes aren't sort of taken. You know, you don't have to worry about sort of swiping across the screen and having it being taken up by two apps, right? Uh-huh. But even that just does not seem like something that you would... First of all, that seems a little it's complicated, right? People have talked about, well, how would you make multi... Multi, multiple apps on the same screen work. And I think the, the consensus when people were talking about this, was a couple, which was a couple months ago, was that most of the way other OSs are doing, like Microsoft is doing it, for example, are overly complicated. And that Apple probably wouldn't do it quite like that. But it does seem that there has to be something more going on here because there's just too much emphasis being placed on abstracting out that layer when it doesn't really need to be abstracted. So now there are, I don't remember exactly what they're called, but there's a, they're like a size type. I'm not sure. I don't think it's called type sort of compact versus regular that they come to. And they want you to use that as the way to tell what mode you're in instead of orientation and, and size. The thing that they mentioned in the session though, is that there is, if for an iPhone, 
basically what you're saying is you want a, a more compact interface when you're on an iPhone. But compact to, to vertical versus horizontal uh, types or sizes or whatever they're called. And for the iPhone in portrait, height is not compact. Height is regular. But if you put the phone in landscape, then both height and width are compact. And that doesn't seem to quite work for me. You're losing information. It's a it's an imprecise abstraction, imprecise simplifying down of things. And then also for the iPad, both sizes are regular. And, you know, why would they do that? Why would they design something like that? So, again, it seems like there might be something more going on where somehow the the, the portrait interface of the iPhone is somehow especially important that you want to be able to tell that difference, portrait versus landscape, when you don't care about it for the iPad. But if so, again, it seems pretty silly to introduce that and then not tell us what it is. Now, the APIs themselves are actually quite nice if you look at it. I think when you look at the, the slide from the presentation, there's like, you know, 10 old APIs and one new one. And that one new one, which I can't remember the exact name of it, does combine them all at once. Because what you need when you're rotating is you need to know that it's going to start so you can set things up. You may want to make it so things are ready to, to be faded out or faded in. And then you want to do the animation in the midst of an animation block. And then you want to clean up after yourself. And you had to split these things up into different methods. I think these methods were basically introduced or, or refined. Uh, uh, the, the original methods were from a time before blocks. Time before blocks. Well, that's a title <laughs> for you. Um, and then like they gave us new ones, but those ones were patterned after the old ones, and they were, so they were still weren't quite right. This new one says, okay, one API, that's all you got, that's all you need. That's really useful. I'll use that, definitely. I always say it only and up apps. But it is unfortunate that, that the rest of that abstraction information is gone. What I would probably do if I really needed something different for iPhone versus iPad landscape versus portrait is I'd start comparing sizes again, which is, of course, exactly what they don't want. But... But I just, I think I would need to do that. So kind of puzzling, very interesting. Uh I will be, I will be curious. It's even the the other option would be that they just, they said, well, there's a new device coming out that we can't tell you what the size is. Therefore we need an abstraction. But once you have the abstraction, once you have this new idea for an API, the way Apple works is they're never going to tell you an API and say, well, this is just the best we could do. You know, sorry. No, every new API has to be the best thing since sliced bread. So, and if sliced bread is actually, you know, very good. So I wonder if they kind of got carried away with their own new API and said, well, we need this abstraction for the sake of this other thing. But suddenly now that we have the abstraction, it becomes a a thing in and of itself, a goal in and of itself. Abstract all the things. (laughs) Make everything abstract. Make everything shiny and wonderful and and, and divorced from the grubby (laughs) particulars of of the hardware, but that doesn't work. So yeah, we'll see, but that's what I have to say about it so far. I will say that the, the coming from uh, Mac programming to iOS, iOS programming, it was, especially in the early days, it was very refreshing how direct things were. The, <laughs> the layers of abstraction, where it was like, oh, especially like with the like the next step APIs, where they were kind of like covering the fact that next step could run on top of Windows NT and its own mock kernel. Right, and right. It, it, you know, it was, you'd have these like constants that could mean, you know, they're very generic, and but you knew they meant this <laughs> one thing, right? Yeah. And and I don't know. They're doing it over again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so for my topic, 
is uh, field progr- field programmable gate arrays. So gate array, uh, <laughs> gate wow. arrays, gate array. Yeah, FPGAs, which very sexy engineering name there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I I actually want to ta- have another topic tonight, but uh, it was kind of kind of rests on FPGAs, and I realized that we never talked about them. I realized our audience probably wouldn't know about them, maybe. So I want to give a little intro to them. Uh, so a field programmable gate array is is, and I'll quote here, is like a digital circuit that you can rewire as many times as you'd like with a click of a button. So the idea here is that um, we, you've probably seen like electronics diagrams where they have like the little transistor layouts with like the AND gates and the OR gates, stuff like that. Are we really basic circuit level stuff? FPGAs uh, are essentially uh, those type. Of, imagine if you had kind of like a breadboard or something like that where you could wire up circuits uh, how, you, how you'd like and in terms of software. So instead of physically going and doing it yourself with your own grubby mitts, uh, you can actually define a software and the chip will basically rewire itself. And I was a uh, big fan of FPGAs. Theoretically, I would say probably in the mid-90s. And I kind of thought that they would eventually take over. So, uh, not take over all the way, but at least I, w- I was definitely... I was pretty positive that we would ha- all have uh, basically multi-core FPGAs sitting on our motherboards at this time. Uh, actually, I thought we'd have it like maybe a decade ago or something like that. But there's a variety of economic reasons. This essentially, it boils down to economic reasons why we don't have them. But I, let me talk a little bit about their history. So FPGAs uh, come from this technology called EPROMs, where, you, of course, you have uh, ROM, which is read-only memory. And the Mac 120K famously had 100, uh, what was it, 120K from? That sounds wrong. Maybe it was 512K. I think maybe, because that's how much RAM it had. But anyway. Right. It had maybe even 64K of ROM. Anyway, the toolbox lived in there. And so this was the code that came from Apple. So read-only memory is pretty much what it says on the tin, that it can never be modified. And this is a problem because uh, you go and you lay down all these gates and you fl- uh, actually with ROM, it's, you flip some bits in the factory and then you have a bug and you can never fix it. So on the Mac, you'd, you'd have Apple would patch toolbox routines. So that's actually where we even got trap patching in the first place because Apple wanted to be able to fix its own bugs. Right. Um, so, so ROM is cool, but it's really limited. So there's this concept of EEPROM, which was... Uh, electronically pr- programmable read-only memory. And how that would actually work is, is use some chemical action there where you could actually take the ROM chip. So you could, you could program it and it would accept write once, exactly once. And then it, you could never mutate it again. But if you flashed a UV light on it, then you could write it again. So I don't even know exactly how the physics works there, but it's pretty cool, the idea of flashing UV light on this chip, and now you can write to it again. Just don't take it to a rave. <laughs> I, I, I bet with engineers that's never a problem. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> and then there is uh, EEPROM, which was electronically erasable, programmable, read-only memory. And <clears throat> so that's... Uh, Instead of you actually having to bring along your UV light so you can actually write to this <laughs> thing again, <laughs> you, the, you could say, okay, I'm flipping this bit, now I'm going to write to you again, and now make yourself immutable again. Essentially, it was like, you know how on floppies or like USB thumb drives, you have the write protect 
Yeah, the, the tab, yeah. The, the little switch or whatever. Yeah, it's essentially that, except at uh, at this level of memory. So it's, it kind of has a little write protect tab on it. And so <clears throat> there's... So this technology has basically evolved into FPGAs, which which allow you to do the same thing with circuits. And so <clears throat> I, I'm going to be a little bit hand-wavy on this, on like, why do we <laughs> care about any of this? Because um, there are specific uh, uses for, for FPGAs, uh, typically used for digital signal processing applications and ASIC prop, uh, prototyping. ASIC is application-specific integrated circuits. Um, and those are pretty good. Uh, I would say that the DSP use of of FPGAs has maybe fallen by the wayside, unless you're talking about things like software-defined radio. Uh, that's because it turns out the vector processors we have in our general-purpose uh, processors nowadays do really good job of of DSP style uh, of calculations, and so it. Really, FPGAs aren't as cost-effective as uh, as those vector units where you have laying around. For ASIC prototype is really where they shine, and uh, it's this is tangentially related, probably to my next topic. Uh, but ASIC is where you have these application-specific integrated circuits that you basically you're you're rolling your own chip, and. But the problem is, once you're rolling your own chip, you have some sort of quantity limitations. Maybe you need to make a thousand of them before you can even talk to the fab. Maybe you need to need to do ten thousand. You have to do a lot. And so, if you're especially if you're prototyping or designing things, um, you you don't want to obviously have to <laughs> create thousand just to get started. So uh, that's I would say is probably the primary use case. Um, but that's it. It's just really cool. The idea that you have essentially access to the raw transistors. So you can do things like emulate entirely new processor architectures. Oh, that's right. Sure. Yeah. So uh, you could you could have, and this is why I thought maybe it would take off, is that uh, back in the days, I guess I was interested in, uh, that was uh, Mo- Max were on the Motorola 68000 proce- uh, series processors. And of course, the Intel chips were also big. And so you literally could have one FPGA that you could run in 68000 mode and then basically load up a new brain and say, okay, now you're a 3A6. And um, it would run at you know full FPGA speed, which unfortunately is actually kind of a lot slower. I would bet, what, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's kind of the problem, is that while you have these programmable gates, and you can, at the transistor level, you can define this stuff, it tends to run a lot slower than you wish, <laughs> wish it would. Uh, I, I, it is fast, a lot faster than... Emulating uh, a transistors using a general purpose CPU. However, it, it once uh, it's, it's just, you really can't compete with like emulating a GPU, but uh, a CPU. So it, we, it, like I said, it's good for prototyping. It's good also for theoretical thing. Another problem with this is that uh, FPGAs. I, I looked around a little bit before we recorded, but of course now we don't do research, so who knows how right I am about this? <laughs> Not that I was ever just, right about just anything. Just make it up. <laughs> Is that the loading and unloading of these things can take a long time? Uh, so these new brains, so basically, what you're what you're doing here is that how you program these things is also very interesting because you're you're not writing C code anymore, right? You're not writing writing imperative code because what you're doing is you're just defining circuits, and circuits really aren't kind of like sequentially type things, right? They're circuits. They're um, and so you write in what's known as hardware description language, where you're basically lie you're you're describing 
uh, all the circuits and how, how they interact with each other. And so the two languages used for this is, uh, the two common ones, is a language called uh, VHDL, which stands for Very High Speed Integrated Circuit uh, Hardware Design Language, and the other one is uh, Verilog. And one of the reasons why I brought this up is, oh, of course, the, the topic probably next week that I'll get to, but there was this uh, Kickstarter who uh, was pretty interesting. It's called the Mini Spartan 6 Plus. And it's, <laughs> again, you could tell we're in electronic engineer land here because the names tend to, tend to be kind of even more nerdy than what software people come up with. But uh, they basically took a, uh, what's in the Spartan 6, uh, it's, a, it's a FPGA processor. And it's uh, one of the better, uh, better ones out there. Uh, I, I mean, not better, but like uh, popular ones. And it's pretty low cost. And they basically put it on a circuit board and put a USB interface on it and an HDMI interface on it. And uh, I think, uh, yeah, some stereo out and a bunch of other th- and a bunch of general purpose input output type stuff. And they're selling in for six, 69 bucks a pop, so 70 bucks a pop. And so this feels kind of like Apple II ish, right? The idea of you buying like this cheap hardware that everyone says, well, what can you do with that? But all the nerds are like, oh, yay, new, new toys. Um, so we'll link to the project of the page. It's already been fully funded. In fact, they totally blew through what they initially wanted. I think they were like wanting to raise like eight thousand or ten thousand or something like that, and they raised I think like eighty thousand or something like that. So they kept on improving the board. Um, <clears throat> so if you're interested in uh, kind of like actually kind of designing your own like processor architecture, kind of playing with these ideas, um, you don't actually. After wire up a breadboard, which would be, I mean, actually, there's no conceivable way you could actually wire up a breadboard and really inter- and uh, create a real you know processor. But if you want to kind of play with like processor architectures, or kind of uh, think about how you can desi- design design uh, basically infrastructure set architectures that are uh, that kind of do things a different way, which is kind of a telltale sign, a, a, a little bit of foreshadowing there of what my next topic will, will, go, will go into. Um, this is definitely uh, it's, 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 uh, probably the best way forward for that stuff. Well, we don't have to keep our topics a secret. You could just tell us what you're going to do no, next no, no, week. No, no, no. This is this is. And I, in fact, <laughs> maybe this is my way of kind of because we have this new <laughs> format. <laughs> I'll just give give little hints because I might not even get to my actual topic even yeah, next that's week. True. Right, right. I might even have yet another piece of information I need to give you or to bring the pieces together. So maybe this is kind of like a, a murder mystery version of Edge Cases. <laughs> where I'll keep giving you clues. Our, our new I'm like season. Agatha Christie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Our last season was a documentary, and this season is a murder mystery. <laughs> Very nice. Know. Okay, so that's that's enough about uh, FPGAs. If you're if this stuff sounds interesting at all to you, I highly recommend you check out the Mini Spartan Six project. You still can buy them; they're like double the price now, but they're in manufacturing now. But um, there's also a bunch of other boards, but that was a you know the popular one that caught the press's attention. Well, not really press, but my nerd bubble attention. And uh, so yeah, it's, it's cool stuff. You should check it out. And uh, that, okay, so that does it for me. For you, all right, great. So we'll see you next time.